All right, good morning, Ville Church. All right, open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3. We're in a two-week series on the fall. And Genesis chapter 3 is going to answer two questions. The first is, where did sin come from? In other words, why is your life and everyone around you so messed up? <laughs> I'm not judging, I'm just discerning. Number two, who is my real enemy. We're going to laser beam focus on the second question today. Who is my real enemy? And so Genesis chapter three will be in verse one as well. We'll start. Satan shows up. There is no warning. He is, he shows up unaware and he shows up disguised by the way, just like he does today. He clothes himself with misleading questions, deceptive ideas. I'm going to be honest, just flat out lies. And, and so here's what the text wants you to do. So as we're reading through this, as I'm teaching, as we're thinking about this, the text wants you to answer a couple questions. Number one, would I have done anything different if I were Eve? Would I have done anything different if I were Eve? And number two, do I have what it takes to stand up to the most cunning, manipulative, and deceptive force in all of the cosmos? And so I want to just start, and I want to tell you what the difference might be between you and Eve. So here's the difference. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit resident inside of you. Uh, The Holy Spirit is your helper, your teacher, your equipper, your trainer, your convictor. He is God himself in you to give you what you need to stand against the schemes of the evil one. But God didn't stop there. You also have the word of God. We find that every time Satan and Jesus talk, what does Jesus speak with? The word of God. This is your sword. He is obligated. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Satan is obligated to bend the knee at your authority and the authority of the word of God. God also gives you positional authority that you now have authority over angels in Jesus Christ. Crazy thought, I know. There is nothing for you to be afraid of if, if you have the Holy Spirit. And if you are armed with the word of God, and this is why the Bible says, uh, if, if Satan hypothetically were to stand up right here toe-to-toe with you, um, you go right up to him and you stand your ground, you stand firm, and by the laws, the spiritual laws of this universe, he is bound and obligated to flee. This is his responsibility because of your authority and because of your power. Now, most Christians do not understand this. And so many Christians are running around afraid, and they just don't know the rules. They just don't know the game. They don't know how it works. They don't know that he's limited. They don't know the authority they have. They don't know how to handle themselves. And so this morning, here's what I want to really simply do, is I want to take the opportunity, believers in Jesus, I want to train you. I want to help you understand the nature, the character, the methods, the tactics of the evil one. And I want you to understand what they are so you can look out for them. But more importantly, you have to know your position and your authority authority and your weapon. Because you can have all the power in the world, but if you don't know you have it, it's no good. You can have all the money in the world, but if you don't know you have it, you're never going to be able to spend it. Now, here's the difference between you and Eve. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have no protection, you have no power, and you have no authority. I don't say this to be like scary or anything of the sorts, but in scripture, the narrative of the scripture is that when you trust in Christ, you are plucked out from, we'll say, the concentration camp of the evil one. You are plucked out of their authority and you are put into the home of Jesus Christ, of God the Father and the Spirit. You are now protected and now they have no authority over you. You're in a whole new jurisdiction, right? And the scripture's idea is that if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, that you are in this concentration camp and your ruler is a master of evil who hates you and will use you for his own ends. Again, that's not meant to be scary. It's just the narrative that the scripture portrays so that when you trust in Jesus Christ, not when you're good, but when you trust in him, when you confess your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, he plucks you out, he transfers you from the domain of darkness into the domain of his life-giving light. And if I were to ask you, would you rather live in a concentration camp under the oppressive evil of the most cunning, manipulative murderer in the universe, or would you rather be in the home of the most loving, benevolent, gracious father in all of history, more than one could ever imagine? What would you pick? You would pick God the Father. And yet there are many people who lay and stay and take a nap and don't get out of this when it is freely offered to them through faith in Jesus Christ. And so one of my desires for you as you see this is that you could start to know the tricks of the evil one, the tactics, the methodologies, and you would not stay there, but you would realize freedom for you is found 
through faith in Jesus. So open up your notes with me, point number one. In your notes, Satan is exposed as a crafty liar. Our village church, let's get to know his tactics. Verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we're gonna pause, gonna just pull out for a moment. Satan has no previous experience tricking humanity. This is new territory for him, and it's new territory for humanity. This has never happened before. We'll call this the first experiment. Now, now you could say that Satan has a lot of experience tricking, but those are angels. Satan took a third of the angelic realm with him, so he has at least a proven ability to be cunning and deceptive and to pull people away from God over to his side, right? Um, But we've never seen this happen with humanity before, and so he's got to be probably wondering, is she like me? Is she like the angels? Is she like God? Is she altogether different? Um, What methods, what tactics do I use? And what you're going to find really quickly is that in in this first experiment, Satan is going to throw every single trick and tool at her, and she's going to fail miserably. He's got four things to his advantage. Number one, he knows God personally, right? He knows God's character. He knows God's nature. He knows God's power. He knows God's heart. He knows him personally. Number two, he had first hand experience, eyewitness account to God creating the world. He saw how God made everything, how he fashioned Adam and Eve. He was able to watch Genesis 1 and 2 as God created them and blessed them and put them in this garden and commissioned them to do all that he said to do. Number three, he's already had experience in deceiving. And number four, he he has something to his advantage. He has a crafty and sinister heart. And so here we go. We release this guy onto creation. I don't know why God takes the most cunning of all creatures and dumps them on earth, but he does. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, God, what's up? What are you doing? Let's look at this word crafty. Crafty means cunning and deceitful. It's trickery. It's cunning. It's deceitful. It's trickery. And in the Bible, it's almost always negative. I mean, there's one or two instances where to be crafty uh, is a good thing. By and large, if I tell you you're crafty, um, that's typically not going to be a compliment coming from a pastor. And uh, Satan reveals multiple, or the Bible reveals multiple dimensions to the craftiness, the trickery, the deceitfulness of Satan. So here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, First, I want to show you from the New Testament briefly, um, the New Testament's picture of Satan's craftiness. And then what I'm going to do second is we're going to come back to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to watch as his scheming craftiness unfolds before us. So uh, in your notes, still under point number one, we're going to look at Satan's crafty agenda revealed in the New Testament. Number one, Satan is a schemer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Why do you need to be prepared? Why do you need to be overprepared? Why do you need the entire armor of God? Right? Because it tells us that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. Right off the bat, the devil is a schemer, a manipulative planner, a trickster, trying to throw manipulative things in front of you that get you to walk away from God or his plan, or we'll just say flat out sin. Here's the idea for the believer, by the way. This is not, just for, this is not for unbelievers, this is for you. That, that Satan is relentless. And it's not just him. It's an entire hierarchical structure of the demonic that scripture teaches about. They're not just some haphazard, random organization of evil spirits wandering aimlessly through the, the, through the universe. They're an incredibly well-orchestrated, well-organized strategic machine that is geared at dismantling and frustrating you. Not interesting. Now, you don't need to be a victim in all this, do you? You, you are a conqueror, but you got to know what he's up to. And here's the idea. It's relentless. He's scheming, he's attacking. He's scheming, he's attacking. He has everything at his disposal to come against you, not just you, your children and your grandchildren 
and your children and grandchildren are way, way less equipped to deal with this, less, this level of cunning. And so we have to be very careful. So here's what you see. He's a schemer. Number two, we find that Satan is a murderer. John 10.10, 10, speaking of Satan, calls him the thief, says the thief comes, uh, the word only here is really striking, only to steal and kill and destroy. That's it. There is no positive agenda. There's no positive motivation. If you were to have a, a conversation with Satan, it wouldn't matter how nice he was, how complimentary he was, your hair looks so great. Michael, you look good bald. Like, there's nothing that he could say that would not have the ultimate objective to taking from me. There's nothing good that he wants for, from me or from you because you represent God. You are made in the image of God, his arch enemy, the one he hates more than anything you can imagine. Uh, John, uh, a little bit earlier, here's what Jesus says. He says to, to the religious leaders, I don't know, I would never want Jesus saying this to me, but you are of your father, the devil, <laughs> and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. So that, here's how this works. When Satan fell, he didn't just start to get worse and worse and worse. When Satan fell, God gave him wholly 100% completely over to sin in every conceivable way. That there was not one ounce of righteousness left in him. So like as humans, um, when we sin or when we struggle, even as non-Christians, right, we're not the worst we could plausibly be. It's a different scenario. Sometimes we think like Satan was just kind of bad and kind of good. What God did with the angelic realm is he gives them 100% completely over to sin so that they become the representation of evil throughout the universe. But it doesn't stop there. The New Testament paints Satan as one more thing. Number three, a liar. So John 8, uh, Jesus is still talking to the leaders. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. And then he says uh, later on in verse 44, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. We have to paint this picture for you because you need to take this rubric and read Genesis 3 through this lens that Satan's craftiness is pure, sinister, malicious evil. Uh, this is not like a conversation where Satan's just like talking to Eve, like, hey, how's it going? What did God say to you? From the very beginning, from the very start of the discussion, the objective is to kill. Uh, now go back to Genesis chapter three, uh, verse one. We're gonna look at Satan's crafty tricks. I'm gonna read um, one through five. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Uh, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to introduce you to two tactics. Um, we're going to look at the same text through the lens of each of these tactics. And so the first tactic is manipulation. Uh, how many of you would say that you're easily manipulatable? Probably no one's going to raise their hand. I'm a gullible person. Uh, no one's going to say that. Here's the problem. You've never had a conversation with somebody as sinister and crafty and manipulative as the evil one of the universe. I would love to say I would never do what Eve did. What's interesting is that the moment she engages him, she loses. Because she doesn't engage him in the right way. But let's give her a little bit of credit, could we, for a moment? She's never been trained. She, for as far as we know, this woman knows nothing. She has one thing. God's word, likely given to her through Adam. God's word, that's all she has. And now the question is, all you have is God's word. What will you do? What would you do if that was the only defense you had against the most cunning, sinister creature in the cosmos? Could you stand? And could you make it? Now the, the author wants, to see, wants you to see a couple things here. No, number one, I want to show you this. Man, Satan manipulates by subverting authority. Did God actually say? Now, uh, uh, the author wants you to see this. This is not going to be like, we'll say user-friendly for a 21st century 
we'll say liberal audience, but that's fine. Adam, Eve's protector, is where? We don't know. Quiet, missing, not there. God, Adam and Eve's protector, what's he doing? He's off on a walk. Satan sees something really strategic. He sees a person without authority. He sees a person without protection. And here's what we know, that every single man and woman from the day you're born to the day you die, you need authority. You need protection. You need leadership. All of us, every one of us, this is human. And that when we remove ourselves from protective leadership, we are more vulnerable than we could ever possibly imagine. This is a part of the rhythm that God puts into the universe. And so why does he subvert the authority? Because he knows that people without authority will give in inevitably to their basest desires. This is what happens when authority leaves your life. You give in. This is why, we'll just say college syndrome, right? You're, you got this high school student, they're in their home, whatever. They have the protective authority of their mom and their dad and their school and their teachers and the, the neighborhood they live in. And they go to college and they don't replace their authority. They don't go to a church and go to the spiritual leaders and find mentors and say, mentor me, help me. And so what happens, college is like the the the, the most obvious place to see this, they give in to their basest desires because this is human nature on display. And so here's what, what Satan knows. Get her away from her authority, and now I'm gonna use my trickiness, my sinisterness. Look at the word actually in verse three, or verse one, uh, three. And, and I wanna just kind of give you like a, a scenario of how this might have sounded. Um, Eve, wait. Are, are you serious? Did God, I mean, I know God. Did he? Okay, I was a part of the plan, okay? I saw this whole thing. Did he really, really say that to you? Because the God I know, he would never do anything like that. Like the God I know would never, ever let bad things happen to you. The God I know would never withhold the things you want. You just need to follow your heart. Because the God I know he just wants you to have everything you want. He just wants you to be happy. That's all he wants, right? You start to see that? Let me just tell you, pastoral counseling, okay? All of these lies come up one by one by one by one by one by one. It's unbelievable. Followers of Jesus who have the book, right? Who know the tricks. We just buy hook, line, and sinker into all of these inane things. Here, here's what he's doing. He's manipulating her to three conclusions. Number one, Eve, something is wrong with God. That's what he's saying. Something is wrong with God. It's like in your workplace, maybe somebody comes up to you and say, did the boss really say that? Like, did they react? Okay, actually, did they actually say that? What's the implication? Something's wrong with the boss, right? And so now what he's doing is he's casting doubt on the authority who's not there. Number two, God, your leader, is holding out on you, I think. That's the second thing he's telling her. And so now she's like, huh, Satan knows God, and he seems to think something's wrong with God, and he seems to think that God might be holding something out on me. And then, and then here's, here's what he does. In this process of manipulation, he positions himself as the good guy and God as the bad guy. The authority is bad, I'm good. And then here's what he does. Eve, trust me, I'm the good guy. That's how this, this is meant to conclude all of that. God bad, me good, I think he's holding out on you. And the question now is, is she gonna buy it? And you know the answer, but here's the better question. Are you buying it? That's the question. And I, I just want to tell you, church, um, the victim mentality in the church is unbelievable. The amount of times these lies, God's holding out on me. God isn't looking out for me. If God loved me, he would. The amount of these lies just creep, 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 creep in are unbelievable. Number two, Satan manipulates by casting doubt on God's heart. Would a good God actually do that? Let me, let me tell you culturally how this lands, okay? And then the reality. Um, one of the questions that many, many non-Christians have, many Christians have, is how can God be good and there still be evil in the world? If God was good, he would stop evil when we give scenarios. All right, the question is a trick designed to make God look bad, to put your common sense as the ultimate source of logic and truth, okay? Here's the challenge. Okay, the question is there. But then when you die, you're going to meet the most holy, righteous God who is sovereign in control, and he's still 100% good, and yet evil still exists. It doesn't change anything. But somehow the question plants a seed in our mind that says maybe he's untrustworthy. 
So despite the interesting way of phrasing the question, is God still trustworthy? Yes, is he still good? Yes, is he still holy? Yes, is he still righteous? Yes, you're over here asking the question, you're doubting it, but the reality, excuse me, of what happened over here hasn't changed one bit. It's a trick question, it's a manipulated question, and it's there to get you to cast doubt on God's actual heart. The question is causing doubt, but the reality is the heart has never changed, and the heart of God is pure and good and righteous. He manipulates by casting doubt on God's heart, He manipulates by casting doubt on my understanding of God's word. And this, oh man, this is why you need to know God's word. Uh, So let me just say for you, if you're a believer and you're not interested in studying the Bible and you sleep during all the sermons and you don't engage and you don't open it up, I'm just telling you, you're dead meat, okay? Because you're not equipped. You have everything you need, but you're not using it. You're a billionaire who doesn't have access to a credit card, okay? You have everything you need, but it's right at your fingertips. And here's, here's what he says. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And, okay, what's the answer? No, that is not what he said. You're misleading me, right? Do do you see the point of this? He's trying to manipulate her. Are you sure you understood it right? Like, are you sure there's not something wrong with you at this point? The manipulation is now, it's getting personal, isn't it? It just goes deeper with this. Eve should have said, get away from me. I see what you're up to. That is not what God said. You know what God said because you were there or you saw it or you heard about it. I know that you're trying to trick me. But no, number four, say it manipulates. This is where it gets really frustrating. By exploiting cracks in my thinking. So here's what she says in verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, free, uh, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. True or false? Say true. True, good. But God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. True or false? True. True. Neither shall you touch it. True or false? False. At this point, Satan, in his brain, says, got her. She she doesn't even remember what God said. She's doubting her own ability to understand it. Got her. Lack of clarity on God's word is exactly the tool that he's going to use to trick the vast majority of us in this room. It's going to trick us. And then she says, lest you die. And that's true. But here's what he finds. She's not accurate. He knows God's word better than she does. And so like a great trickster, like a crafty uh, demon, he comes at her on every front, on every level, and he finally finds it. You don't know God's word. It's not, it's not as important to you maybe as it should have been. So let's do this. Let's look at this text from a completely different perspective. Let's look at his second tactic, which is just pure deception. I don't know if you know this. There are multiple ways to deceive somebody. And I'll give you four different lies that he tells her. He throws the entire playbook of lies at her. And here's the first one. It's the doubting lie. Where you say something that is not true or it's said in a way that is not accurate that causes the person to doubt, particularly to, d- to doubt God. Did God actually say? There's a second lie here, which is the misleading lie. It's something that you say that you know isn't true to plant it into their brain. It, it, it's a lie that appears to be, oh, honest mistake. And Satan throws this out. I wonder what she'll do with the honest mistake lie, the misleading lie. You offer a false scenario You position yourself as the good guy, the other person as the bad guy, and you put a little bit of false information, particularly as it pertains to God's word, and you say, well, they bite. Then he gives her the explicit lie. Here's what he says to her. You will not, and here's the word, surely die. Here's what he's saying. I know God. I know God better than you do. I've known God for a long time. And here's what I know. Uh, He's up to something. And you will not die. In fact, God's afraid of you. God's afraid that if you, if you know something, then you're going to be like him. And this is just a flat-out lie, and if he can't get what he wants, once he finds that her mind uh, is, is not remembering God's word correctly, he goes in and replaces God's word with a complete fabrication. Uh, we hear this all the time, by the way. When people say, doesn't the Bible say blank, 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 blank? And I'm like, that, the Bible never, ever, ever says that. Not once, not ever. Um, because here's what's happened. 
Um, what they're trying to do is justify a behavior by saying, I heard from someone somewhere that the Bible says this, but the Bible never says that. It's an explicit lie geared at tricking those who actually don't know the word of God. Like, don't get me wrong. I want you to ask me, does the Bible say? Because I want to take that opportunity and reframe truth because lies enable us to sin and sin kills. But, but this is what we see all the time. These constant mantras, these, these one-liners that people believe to the core of their being are in scripture. And I'll tell you, almost every time I hear Hollywood quote scripture, I'm like, not sure that's there or they meant it like that, but okay. Um, and finally, number four, he gives her the enabling lie. God knows that when you eat of it, here's what he knows, that your eyes are going to be opened. And what he's doing is he's deceiving her and enabling her to walk into something. And she thinks he, she can trust him. And you know the answer. You're reading this and you're like, no, don't do it. There, there's a funny scenario, which you might kill me if, if uh, I told. But uh, a couple of years ago, we were... Uh, playing this game, uh, it was a, at a men's event, and uh, you had to basically take five people and get them over a five-foot um, wall. And uh, so John Tuck, who's our first impressions <laughs> director, um, all these guys pick John up, right? And they put him over their head, and he's light on their back. He's on his back like this, and he's like five, six feet in the air, and they chuck him over this thing. Well, from about twenty feet away, I'm looking at this, and I see it. And I run, I'm like, no, right? This is the worst moment. And John flies over the thing, lands, doesn't even bounce, just lands, right? Ankle, bam, backwards, totally cracked. I run over, I'm like, are you okay? And I look at his ankle, he's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's broken. You might want to call 911. No big deal, though, it's fine, <laughs> right? Adrenaline rushing through his body, right? But this is that moment where you're like, you see something catastrophic about to happen, and you're reading this text, and you're like, no. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, I'm just going to say this right out. This might be the worst, absolute worst moment in Scripture. Uh, everything, everything that you know that is broken happens here. Like, this is it. Every sadness, every heartache, every broken bone that's going backwards. God willing, in the new bodies, we will not be able to do that to our bodies. Everything that doesn't function, every argument, every lie, every murder, every rape, every steal, everything, you name it, it all comes back to this moment. Like, she had no idea. And don't you, don't you wish that God would have said, hey, when you eat of it, you're going to die, and here's what death means. Like, part of me is like, why didn't you give her more information? Here's the deal. You don't need more information, do you? Do I? I need God's word. Honestly, I don't even need it explained because it's clear. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're like, but you, God, didn't. You didn't give me enough. And, and I, I think in the day of judgment, he'll say, was I crystal clear? Yes. Did you know what you were doing? Yes. Are you responsible? Yes. But if you would have... All, all what you have done is expose something broken inside of you. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, do you see all the experiential words, right? That more times than not, it's the experience of something that can draw us away. For some people, it's materials. For some, it's experience. For her, it seems to be the experience of it. That the tree was to be desired to make one wise, like God. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband. Oh, by the way, we find out where he was the whole time, just sitting there. And he ate. What's interesting is we don't know whether Satan and Eve were talking in front of the tree, if they were on the other side of the garden, and then all of a sudden she's like, he makes a lot of sense, this evil, crafty, sinister serpent. I think we should like go check it out. I don't know how it happened, but inevitably they find themselves at the foot of the tree. Here, here, here's what they have. God's word versus the serpent's word. And the serpent manipulated and tricked them because they were not firm on God's word. Let's go to point number two. God is proven as a truthful father. Uh, just as clearly as this text incriminates Satan, it vindicates God. And God is seen for all he is. Honest, with integrity, 
someone you can trust, a man of his word. God is vindicated. You may not like next week when we talk about the aftermath, the fallout of this, right? You may not like what God does, but you can't say this. God's not honest. God didn't warn them. God didn't communicate. God didn't reveal himself. God didn't give them everything they need to succeed, right? You can't blame God in any of this. And, and we're going to watch as God is vindicated. But let's, let's just go back one chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And let's just review what did God actually say. So here, here's what he says. The Lord God commanded the man, okay? The force of this is important. It's not a suggestion. It's not a teaching. This is a mandate. So uh, the father is mandating. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Eat, enjoy, partake, experience. The world is yours. Conquer it. Uh, have dominion. Subdue this. Enjoy it. But of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's go back to Genesis 3, and it will be in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. Notice the immediacy. Right away. They bite, and their entire lens and how they see the world immediately in a moment shifts, and not for the better. And they were given knowledge, indeed, and they knew that they were naked. And the result of that and their shame, they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. They covered themselves because of their shame. And shame is for the guilty. And they are guilty. They are unreconciled to God. They're feeling the guilt, the weight, the overwhelming shame in the nature of their sin. And they're realizing at this moment the very tip of the iceberg of the consequences of their sin. Have you ever gone against God's word, convinced yourself it's going to be fine, and then the fallout just happens for years to come? I'm looking actually at a lot of you, and I know it personally in your life. And in that moment, if, if you, future you, could come back and talk to current you, you would say, could you just not do this? Because I don't think you understand the domino effect that's going to unravel in your life and other people's life. If you walk down this path, this is not going to be good. Don't do it. I think future Eve would love to go back to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and plead with her. Look at verse 8. Then they heard, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, and he said to him, where are you? I don't know how he said it. Hey, guys, where are you? You know, where are you? Like, does God know? Of course he knows, right? Is God playing it cool? Like, let's just see what happens. I don't know how he says this, but it's a really weird phrase. Where are you? And he said, Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I want to take these verses and I want to show you just four things in these verses. I want to, I want to, uh, the author's trying to draw your attention to what Adam and Eve have just forsaken forever. Uh, notice number one. Uh, notice what they heard. They heard the sound of the Lord. That their relationship with God was intimate enough that they just, they knew the sound. They knew the difference between the animal, the serpent, whatever else was there. Um, when I walk down the halls, my wife always knows it's me because I have this particular foot flop and I have keys that jingle jangle wherever I go, right? And so whenever you hear the foot flop and then jingle jangle, she's like, oh, Michael's coming near. I, I'm not subtle anywhere I go, apparently. And, uh, but it's interesting because here's, they, they know him well enough to know his sound, and so you're going to start to see these little clues in the text about the intimacy between God and Adam and Eve. Number two, notice this. Notice how God was delighting in his creation. When you go for a walk, you're enjoying what you've made, what God is, if you're God, that is. And he's walking in the cool of the day, and it's beautiful, and he's taking it in, and God is delighting in his creation. And maybe this is like the last moments that God knows until the new earth um, before sin will creep into every aspect from trees to animals to the ground to the humans everywhere. Notice, notice here the personal use of the words 
Lord God. We talked about Lord is the personal, intimate name of God. It's Yahweh, and then the word God is Elohim, the majestic plural. It is this idea that the majestic, amazing creator of this universe has personalized himself to intimately be in relationship with Adam and Eve. And it says it three times, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, and it's calling out that God has condescended himself to intimacy, to unique, beautiful, personal, interpersonal, give-and-take relationship with Adam and Eve as a father to his children. And then finally, look at this, number four. Um, They knew God's personal voice. Like, wouldn't you love to know the sound of his walk and the the very tone of his voice? I wonder if it was really high pitch or really low, man. You know, in our brain, he's a super manly voice, the deepest voice, and he's whatever. But like, I wonder what did, when Jesus, this is, this is an incarnate Christ, whenever you see a bodily version of God, that's Jesus in pre-incarnate before, uh, we'll say, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 2,000 years ago, right? Jesus is walking in the cool of the garden. He's hanging out. Like, what did he sound like? What the authors are trying to show you is what they're throwing away. And what could possibly, what could possibly make Adam and Eve throw all this away? A piece of fruit, an experience. Let me just translate for you. I find that generationally there are different values that generations have. I find younger people throw away their relationship with God, not for money, but for experiences. I find this everywhere, but there's this particular obsession that our emerging culture is putting on the experience. Um, I want this kind of life, I want this kind of place, I want to experience this, I need to spend all my money on these kind of vacations, I want to experience, experience, experience. And the things that people will forfeit just for an experience are profound to me. One moment, one night, with one man, with one woman, with one drug, with one thing, with one act, whatever it is, The amount that people are willing to throw away for one experience is mind-numbing. It's mind-numbing. I'll give you just a little principle. If you don't know this by now and you haven't caught it from the sermon, well, here it is. Satan's path feels good now. It does. Like There'll be very few things that he offers to you that are not going to be fun and feel good. He doesn't offer torture. He gives you torture after you walk down the path and you get trapped. But everything he offers you feels good now, but it always, always leads to death. There is not one thing he will put in front of you that will lead to your life, that will lead to your joy, that will lead to your prospering, your flourishing, your spiritual growth, your Christ-likeness. There's nothing he's going to put in front of you that's going to go down that path. But my father's path, I'll be honest, it's often difficult now. Anybody, Anybody ever feel that way? You have to resist so many impulses that are just natural inside of you and you got to resist that. Like, this is not easy, but it always leads to life. If you talk to a believer who's walked with God long enough, um, here's what they'll, they'll tell you. I, I never, I've never regretted doing the hard thing for God. I've never regretted obeying. I have regretted, oh, about a million times when I ignored God's word and walked the path of sin. Felt good, destroyed me in the end. You know what I'm saying? Like, you'll never find that. When you talk to smart people, wise people who've walked with the Lord for a long time, they look back on sin and they say, wasn't worth it. Wasn't worth it. And they look back at all the times where they said no to sin and they say, do that over again and again and again. There's wisdom in this. Because when you're young, you take advantage of grace. When you're young in the faith, that is. And then as you grow older, you realize as you watch sin and as you watch the entire long game that you play with it, this sin culminates here and here and ultimately leads to death and really hurts a lot of people in the process. Sometimes it takes years of walking with the Lord to know this. But do you need years to know this? You just need God's word. That's all you need. God's word is really clear. He's a schemer. Follow my word. It's true. It always leads to life. But it's hard. Um, Nobody, anybody in this room would ever know, but uh, a long time ago, I sat down with this kid. And here's the words that came out of his mouth about 17 times in a one-hour conversation. It's just so hard. And by about time 14, I started getting angry. And by the time like 17, 18, I'm just like, stop saying that. Life is hard. Everything's hard. Deal with it, right? Like awesome people do hard things. The greatest things in life are hard. The easiest things in life are easy, and then they destroy you. Like do the hard thing, man. Like buckle up. Be, be somebody who does difficult things to the point where this so infuriated me that it became a fueling house mantra. Fuelings do the hard thing. 
That's what I tell my kids. We do the hard thing. Why? Because it always leads to, le- to death. The easy path, that, that, bleh, we do hard things. So my daughter will regularly say to me, why, why do we have to do the hard thing? Girl, girl, you don't even know what's coming in life. This is so easy. But in her little mind, this is as hard as it gets. I just tell her, feelings do the hard thing. That's what we do. Feelings do the hard thing. You're a feeling. We don't walk the easy path. We walk the difficult path. Why? Because everybody walks that path. Very few people walk this path. This is where greatness happens. This is where mediocrity happens. This is where you grow into Christ-likeness and find joy in life. This is where everything else happens. Feelings do the hard things. Lewis's do the hard things, right? That's what we do. We do the hard thing. And it's not easy. Never said it was going to be easy, but it's worth it. This is why I can look at people in counseling and I can just say, I know it's not easy. It stinks, right? Just do it. Because <laughs> this is what we do. Nothing's easy. You want to be a doctor? It's not easy. You want to be shredded? It's not easy. You want to be super smart? It's not easy. You want a PhD? It's not easy. You want to build a house? It's not easy. Right? You want a great marriage? It's not easy. You want to raise semi-functional kids? It's not easy. I used to say to myself, or to other people about myself, I'm the kind of person who has to learn the hard way. If you ever say this to yourself, I love you, I've said it, right? That's just our way of saying I'm stubborn, prideful, and rebellious, and I have a deep issue with God and his word and trust, and I like to do things my way, okay? Sort of what it's like saying, I'm just guilty, okay? So years ago, I stopped saying this because it really wasn't becoming. It actually just became like a way for me to say I'm dumb. That's what it became. And I was, right? And so uh, I've learned with people like, okay, yeah, you're gonna, you will learn the hard way. I see that now. That doesn't make you look smart. It doesn't, when I look back, right, I don't look at myself and think to myself, oh, yeah, that was real smart. That's a becoming man right there. That's a godly like, example like, he just can't control himself. He's just got to do it the hard way. But that was, that was the mantra of my life for a long time. And eventually, I had to look at the mirror of God's word and say, no, I have God's word, and I have clarity, and that has to be enough. And Satan can bring up all the trickery and manipulative questions. Well, if God were good, then he wouldn't let you do this. And if God really loved you, he would just want you to be happy. They're all trickery. It's all manipulation. It's all deception. And I have to lay into what I know. God's word says he is good, he is true, he is right, and he is holy. And that if you walk his path, it brings life. You know what's so crazy? Every time I walk his path, I'm happier. Even though it's hard, I'm happier. And every time I walk down the path of experience that contradicts God's word, I'm not happy. Go figure. Like he's actually telling the truth. And all the manipulative, deceptive questions are, they're a trick. Uh, it's really sad. You look at this text, and they hid because of sin their bodies from each other, from God. They ended up hiding personally from God. And now let's, let's just watch as they turn on each other. I'm not going to belabor this point because I could preach a whole sermon about why your marriage is jacked up, and most of it's going to come right back to this text. And uh, here's, here's what happens. And uh, it says in verse 11, he, he said, who told us, God, who told you that you were, you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to. You can you put the scripture up? So God values extreme ownership. This is what I want to close with. Extreme ownership. There's this, there's this book that we had all of our staff read it about, I think about two years ago, called Extreme Ownership. And it was written by this Navy SEAL. And I actually mandated that they don't read it. They listen to the audio book. Because this Navy SEAL, his voice is like, he's like a super manly. You know? And so all the stories were like, I was in Vietnam and I slit the throat of so-and-so and and then all of a sudden I found myself surrounded by like 30,000 people and I stabbed them all with knives and came out on top, right? All the stories were like that. They were just incredible, right? But the point of the book was uh, great leaders, people you can trust, people you want to go into battle with, they have extreme ownership. They give away credit, right? And then they take the blame when it's under their their authority or leadership and responsibility. And and here is is the trick. Um, God is going to make them face extreme ownership. And so the first question he says is, who, who gave uh, to the woman who gave to be with, uh, no, sorry, go back to verse 11 with me. Back, back, one more verse. I'll read it. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so here's, here's what I find. We sit in marriage counseling and getting somebody to say, I'm sorry, it is utterly near impossible. And when they do, they're like, sorry. And at this point, like, I'll just give you a little bit of training, okay? So you want to know, like, 
my wife is probably, I don't think she's in the service, so we'll leave this out second service when she's in here. Uh, uh, there are things that if you really want your husband or wife to like think you're doubly amazing and get past every argument fairly quickly, um, try extreme ownership for everything you do wrong. So here, here's where it starts. Uh, you, name, you name the sin. What is it? Like you actually name it. Um, Eve should have said, I lacked faith. I sinned by doubting God. Very rarely will somebody say, I'm sorry, and then name the sin. I deceived you on purpose, <laughs> right? There's power in naming this. What does it say about me? Oh, I don't know if I've ever heard this before other than, <laughs> um, I deceived you, and that tells me that I am growing in deception and insecurity. Wow. Like, that's kind of a disarming apology, right? You're like, oh, I kind of feel bad for you now. <laughs> what it's done to us. I wanna recognize the damage that it has legitimately caused you to doubt whether or not you can trust me and to wonder in the future how will insecurity and deception be a partner in our marriage, all right? Will you forgive me? Actually reconcile the relationship. I'm sorry is how we, mo we usually land, but okay, will you forgive me as reconciliation language? Will you forgive me? I have a problem, I did this. And then, it doesn't just stop there. What do I need to change? Let me, that is how you reconcile in a marriage. That's how you make a relationship better, right? Ownership, extreme ownership. God loves us. And do you think Adam's gonna do that? Nope. The woman you gave to be with me, go back to verse 12. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it, right? Who's at fault? Adam, I don't care what somebody does to you. I don't care how bad they are. I don't care how bad of a victim you are. You're responsible for you. That's all. That's all you got. And when you sin, despite how evil Satan is, like it's almost like Satan's really bad, therefore I'm not that bad, so it's okay. Sin is not about comparing yourself to somebody who's worse than you, is it? It's about comparing yourself to the standard who is Jesus. And then the woman says in verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Like own this thing. And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. He's so bad. It doesn't matter what I did. No big deal, right? And this is how we apologize. And the response from God, we're gonna see this in a couple weeks, is that they get cast out. Satan's evil does not invalidate their sin or the consequences of their sin. Look all around us. They need to own this. And I wanna close with this. Uh, Adam and Eve were reconciled to God in the same way Moses was, Abraham, Cain, Abel, uh, the 12 disciples, the Apostle Paul, um, every one of us in this room. They are saved and reconciled to God and made right by God by believing in Jesus Christ. So when we say believe in Jesus Christ, it does not mean that you have to be a really good person, but it does require that you own your sin. A good person doesn't come to God and be like, I'm really, really good, but I want to go to heaven, so can I be on your team? No, when you trust in Jesus, what you're saying is, I am a sinner. Not even just generically. I think there's sometimes there's value in being able to look at God and just literally own it. This is why confession should be a regular practice of a believer. We list out and own the nature of our sins and what it says about us, and we beg God, will you change me? Um, what I love about saying sorry to God after you're a Christian is that you're already forgiven, Right? Now the request is, will you help me? I already know I stand cleansed and forgiven because of Jesus Christ. And this is just a really sad culmination. In this scriptures, we get to see how easily deceived we are, how sin has pulled us away from God. But we're gonna start to watch is that God provides a path of reconciliation. And I, I, I cannot let one single church service go by without having to just say this. It's not by being good. Nobody gets reconciled to God by being a good boy or a good girl or being better than the person next to you, ever. We are reconciled to God solely, thoroughly, exclusively by faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in him. I believe I am a sinner. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. And this is the beautiful thing about coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He can take even the people, even the people who inaugurated and initiated all of the sin and tragedy of this world and the blood of Christ is still able to save them through faith. And at this point in time, the blood of Christ hasn't even been shed yet, but the future potency of it is enough to retroactively cover everything that this man and this woman did to destroy all of the universe and humanity as we functionally know it. That's how powerful the blood of Christ is. And so as you're reading this, here's what, here's what the author of Genesis wants you to see. Moses wants you to say, oh no, that's me. Oh no, I've sinned. 
I'm no better. I've been duped. I've been lied to. I've been manipulated. I had everything that I need to get through this, and I didn't. I have been estranged from God, not because he's bad, he kept his word, but because I have a problem. There's nothing I can do to make this right. And this is where God comes in and says, "You're, you're right, there is nothing you can do, but I can. Trust in me. And salvation has been the same from the beginning to end. We look forward to the Messiah before Christ, now after Christ we look back. And so Village Church, if you trusted in Christ, I just want to give you great news. Um, You have authority, you have the word of God, and you have the Holy Spirit. And now, there is no need for you to be duped any longer. None. Those of you who never trusted in Jesus Christ, I have amazing news for you. God can transfer you from the domain of the concentration camp of Satan's evil mastery and he can pluck you out of this and transfer you into the domain of light where he gives you his spirit, his word, and his people, and he protects you and gives you authority over the evil one. What an amazing gift. You didn't know this. You come to church, and you literally have your whole life changed if you trust in Jesus, right? How amazing is that? And this is what Christ offers. This is what we preachers offer. It's what we Christians offer. We offer it to our neighbors and our kids and our grandkids and our friends and children and children's ministry, and we offer it from the pulpit. We offer this. You literally can be transferred from a concentration camp to the family of God. Who would say no to that? Let's pray. Father, I want to just take a moment and say thank you for being so overwhelmingly good to us. I do have a lot of questions. I'm going to be honest. Um, I do want to talk to you about why you went on a walk. But here's what I know that I know that I know. Your answer will suffice You will be proven good and truthful. And if I knew what you knew in those moments, I would have gone for a walk too. And so God, even though we don't have every question um, answered, even though there are these questions of trickery and manipulation implanted into our cultural heart language, God, we want to rise above them because what is more true is your word, which is the overflow of your heart and your mind and your will. And so, Father, I pray you would help us. Would you make us aware of the schemes? And would you show us the power and the authority that we actually have? For Lord, for those who have neglected your word, who have put it aside, who live vicariously off the knowledge of their preacher or their mentor or their youth leader, God, I pray you would ignite in us a fire to know it so that like Jesus, when he stood toe-to-toe with Satan, simply quoted scripture and Satan had nothing to say God thank you for victory and power and as we draw our hearts and our minds to the cross and communion when we stand here filled filled with gratitude Lord for those of us struggling and would you just would you fill us would you give us thankfulness I pray this time of communion would be sweet for us in Jesus name amen amen